Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Ghost Writer by Robert Block It's an old Chinese proverb that when two screwballs get together they usually click. This would explain the strange friendship of Luther Hawkins and Stephen Ayers. You may not know of Luther Hawkins, and you wouldn't want to meet him now, because he's dead. Stephen Ayres, at the moment, is equally undesirable, as an acquaintance. But I am sure that all readers of fantasy know both Hawkins and Ayres under their pseudonyms, for both have written weird fiction of considerable merit. Hawkins produced the superior work, and many of his stories have been reprinted, under his pen-name, naturally, in anthologies of horror stories. Stephen Ayres, the younger man, has done fair work in that line, and recently wrote a surprising series of tales very much in the style of his late friend. As writers, both deserve recognition in their field. But they were screwballs. Hawkins, and what a poor drab name for a fantasy writer, was an Edgar Wallace type, an E. Phillips Oppenheim character, a Sax Roma special. He took himself pretty seriously, Luther Hawkins did. Hawkins, the South Dakota country bumpkin with his snaggle teeth and foolish mop of straw-coloured hair. What strange force within him produced the bizarre tales and Wildian verse that made him famous? This man, with the background and physical aspect of a farmer, had something that made him strive for education, erudition, something that drove him to New York, drove him to a typewriter, drove him to the creation of a unique world of literary fantasy. He was an alien to his environment, and an alien to his very body, genius and bumpkin, Svengali in the body of a peasant clod, the devil looking out of the eyes of Uncle Ezra. Of course, I exaggerate. But Luther Hawkins exaggerated too. He was, as I say, an Edgar Wallace character. Consciously, I mean. When he attained success, when his stories brought him a certain assured income and recognition— Hawkins began to live up to his reputation. He must have read Le Bar and, against the grain, then looked in the mirror. He was Luther Hawkins, horror story writer, and he looked like Luther Hawkins, hog raiser. His freckled hands, holding a copy of Ramph's De Masticatione Mortuorum in Tumulus, looked more fitted to grasp a copy of the Sears Roebuck catalogue. So Hawkins decided to do something about it. He bought a dress suit. Hawkins, country gawk, in tales. He moved into a bachelor apartment and fitted it up in pre-beardsley style. Black velvet drapes, concealed lights, bronze figurines of Horus and Set and Typhon, Japanese incense burners, the whole works. Looked like a 1925 movie set for one of Lou Cody's seduction scenes. But to Hawkins, this was glamour, mystery. I never met the man, understand but I've heard he took to wearing a long black coat, scowling like Boris Karloff with a sour stomach, and stalking about as though filled with the lead of melancholy. One mutual friend assures me that toward the last, Hawkins adopted a lisp a la Peter Lore, but I think he's joking. Be as it may, Luther Hawkins became a poser, a melodrama character labelled horror writer. He wasn't a fool by any means. When he got money, he bought books— Rare old treatises on demonolatry I'd give my eye-teeth to own. 
He studied, too, under real masters, occultists and divinators of international repute in cult circles. There are some left, you know, direct descendants of Apollonius, not commercial charlatans, but serious students of the black arts. There is talk that toward the end Hawkins had traffic with Satanism and actual black mass ritualism. They say that in certain secret places, in the heart of modern cities, there still persists a survival of the infamous worship to Lucifer. Whether or not this is true, and whether Hawkins actually participated in the blasphemous ceremonies reputed to occur, I cannot say. But I know this. He was a sincere student of, and believer in sorcery, and he might have stumbled across some queer things. Underneath the farmer, and underneath the poseur, too, there was a stranger, a dark stranger, who said nothing, but who wrote ghastly, compelling stories of monstrous worlds and monstrous beings, a stranger who spoke in a tongue of flame, whose words crawled across a page into your soul with hideous, frightening sincerity. So much for the enigma that was Luther Hawkins. Read his stories, and perhaps you will understand what I seem unable to explain. Explaining Stephen Ayres is another matter. I can give you Stephen Ayres in one word. Leech. Stephen Ayres was a parasite in the intestines of literature. He was a wanter, a hoper, a farmer. He wrote me long, incoherent letters describing longer, more incoherent stories he desired me to criticize. His definition of criticize seemed to be a combination of praising his abominable hack-jobs and then completely rewriting them for him. I have met nothing but interesting people through correspondence as a writer, but Stephen Ayres popped up as the one sour note. For quite a while I was tolerant of him and his absurd demands, but patience fled. One day I woke up with a headache and four rejection slips, and answered his last letter, enclosing his most miserable effort, and advising him to file the manuscript in a fantastic manner. And that was apparently that. But Luther Hawkins didn't think so. Ayers must have got tired of pestering us, small fry, and decided to try one of the kingpins of the game. He wrote to Luther Hawkins, much as he had written to me, I suppose. He admired Hawkins's work. He was a fan of Hawkins. Incidentally, he was a writer himself, but had never actually sold anything yet, and so forth, ad nauseum. Hawkins fell. Stephen Ayres was clever. He quickly learned the hobbies, the interests of his victims, cultivated their mannerisms in writing, and professed a great enthusiasm for the subjects venerated by them. Ayres must have poured out a great stream of canal juice and entered his own deep interest in the occult, and ran off to the public library to study up on demonology and witchcraft, so as to quote bits in his letters. At any rate, he clicked with Hawkins. They became regular correspondents. Hawkins read the rancid manuscripts. He was a kindly, generous man, and criticized them. Hawkins rewrote for Ayres. He gave advice, help, and what was more important, put in a good word with the editors. Ayres must have chafed under the frank dissection of his eminent friend, but after a time he knuckled down. Within a year, Stephen Ayres blossomed forth on the printed page under a gaudy pen-name. He sold regularly. He was an author. Well, you know how it is with a bluffer. 
Call his bluff, and nine times out of ten he'll work his head off to make it good, rather than admit defeat. It was that way with Ayres. He started to sell horror stories, so he actually began to take an interest in supernatural lore. He studied thaumaturgy, learned references. He went so far as to make an attempt at learning to write, also. It was hard sledding at first, I imagine, but he progressed. Another year, and Stephen Ayres was really turning out some fairly competent yarns. They read well, their structure was sound, and their factual basis in actual occultism was authentic. But you know how it is with bluffers after they make good their bluff. As the great poet George S. Kaufman has it, confidentially, they stink. Well, that was Stephen Ayres, I'm afraid. Where Hawkins had turned into an actual mystic as the result of success, Ayres became a big shot. His head became inflated with the hydrocephalism of success. Now he gave advice to young writers. He was an authority on witchcraft and he was, in his own eyes, writing just as well as his teacher, Luther Hawkins. I watched the whole thing, remember? News flies fast in the little clique of fantasy writers. I was still corresponding with Hawkins myself. I got the dope. After some time, Ayres began to get up additional steam. Now he was not only the equal of Hawkins, he was superior. He took to criticizing Hawkins's work in recent months— pointing out with illustrations from his own stuff just where the pupil excelled the master. He said Hawkins was old hat, and went so far as to ridicule the older man's eccentric habits of living. You're a pretentious fake. Your so-called studio is nothing but circus ring for Greenwich Village clowns. Throw away your black cloak, it tangles your arms when you try to write. The black mass is nothing but another name for a dark cloud over your brain. Selling your soul to the devil went out of style with the late Doc Faustus. Stephen Ayres was clever enough with his indictments. I couldn't help but marvel when I read them. Marvel and wish to heaven I could smash his teeth in. Hawkins couldn't take it either. I guess he didn't mind having his own work criticized, even by such a fool. But he could not stand to have his serious interest in magic questioned. Underneath the cloak and the scowl he was sincere— I know that only too well. Luther Hawkins, through study and research, had come to believe in certain things. What things, I'd rather not say. But he believed enough to make him rage against those pitiful ignoramuses that scoffed at powers they could not even dream of, let alone understand. So Hawkins told Ayres off, quietly and efficiently, and finally. No, he didn't put a curse on him. He didn't— threaten ears with supernatural visitors of vengeance. He didn't slit his throat and then come crawling around Ayres's door with blood dripping over the carpet. He sent no little green men down young Stephen's chimney. He just quit. Quit writing, quit criticizing, quit helping. Didn't even exactly tell Ayres to go to the devil, because Hawkins entertained a certain affectionate respect for the devil. What he did do, however— was very subtle. Hawkins sat down and wrote an article for a writer's magazine. It was a short article, not very profound, in which he narrated an author's experience in dealing with a fan. The fan was Stephen Ayres, and the whole story was quite simply told with a killing, ironic humour. It was sarcastic, biting, and unmistakable. 
Everyone in the game recognized the fan immediately, and the editors caught the inference at once. Stephen Ayres sold no more stories. He got no more fan letters, no more praise. He was out, simply out on his asinine ear. So much for that. A simple incident, perhaps a meaningless one. A squabble between writers of no interest to anyone save other writers. A little trade story, without much point or punch. But the story doesn't end here. It begins. For Luther Hawkins died, just like that. I heard from him on a Tuesday. Thursday morning he was dead. Heart attack. Found in his exotic room, lying on the floor. No devilish hoof-marks on his face, no blue handprints of some monstrous ape on his neck, not even a decoit dagger in his back. Heart attack. Simple, elderly businessman's heart attack. Luther Hawkins, fantasy writer and student of the mysteries, dead. And Stephen Ayres came to town. Yes, to my town, to live. Not two weeks later he came, and called me at once. I still wanted so much to smack him, smack him hard. But I was quite upset over Hawkins's death, quite soothed, therefore, by Ayres's abject moans of apology, his agonized and apparently sincere wails and self-accusations. I relented, invited him up, talked to him. Stephen Ayres was a wreck. Something had burrowed under that rat fur of his, burrowed under and touched whatever excuse for a heart he possessed. His tardy conscience now stung him with fury. He was— broken up by the death of his former benefactor, truly repentant for his scurviness, no question of sincerity. He sat bawling on my sofa for an hour. I thought Luther hated me, he finally got out. I wasn't sorry to see him die, but but he sent me his effects, his typewriter. What? Yes, his own typewriter, and a note— "'You mean he knew that he was going to—' I began. But Stephen Ayres fumbled in his coat pocket, and handed me a crumpled sheet. I read. "'Dear Stephen, I see it now. That which you have always scoffed at has told me. Before I submit to that which must be, then let me act. My typewriter I send you as most fittingly symbolic of our past friendship. If my work did not always please you, Perhaps your work on the same instrument may prove more suitable. Be as it may, the gesture pleases me, and may it forever serve as a reminder of what has passed between us. We have gone through a great deal together, this simple old box and I. It is almost as though I were relinquishing a part of myself. Indeed, it is with that feeling that I proffer this to you. Use it well, as you have used me. Farewell. Luther Hawkins I am ashamed to admit it, but I smiled. It was Luther's touch all over, the grave melodrama. That which you have always scoffed at has told me, before I submit to that which must be, and so forth. The melodrama, so carefully cut from his stories, bubbled over into his personal correspondence. This letter was typical, a final gift, a forgiveness, with still a hint of sardonic malice. Use it well, as you have used me. Luther's touch, indeed. It had upset Ayres, though, terribly. His ingratitude had been so intense, and yet Hawkins had turned the other cheek, asked him to 
Carrion selected him as recipient of his most cherished possession. Ayers could say nothing. He just bawled. Shut up, I said kindly. It is kindness when addressing an incipient hysteric. I pulled Stephen Ayres to his feet, and put my hands on his shoulders in that man-to-man gesture one unconsciously borrows from the movies. Now listen to me. I know how you feel, but my advice is to pull yourself together. Luther's dead. You're alive. Instead of yammering about how sorry you are, the best thing for you to do is to make some practical amends. How? You've got his typewriter. How about using that, using it properly, to write good stories with? Stories that will be a credit to Hawkins's teaching, to his memory. Use it to write with man, not to scribble out cheap criticisms of your betters or mawkish juvenile thrillers. Get to work. Here's his dark face twisted into an odd smile as he shook off the grimace of sorrow. He faced me, his lean body still listless, but with life in his grey eyes. Yes, he said softly. That would be the way. I— Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. And I'll do it, too. Let me know how you get along, I said, pushing ears toward the door. He nodded. I watched him exit, and heaved a profound sigh of relief. Scenes always embarrass me, and this go-and-sin-no-more role I just played is not my forte. I sat down and lit a cigarette, but it didn't give me a lift. Why the devil had Hawkins given Ayers his typewriter? And how did he know he was going to die? Had that yokel with the soul of a sorcerer really foreseen the end? Did he really possess the key to certain secret powers he constantly referred to in his tales? Perhaps. Luther Hawkins was an amazing man, a complex personality indeed. I fancied there was just a hint of mockery in his gift to Ayers. Instead of breaking his weapon, he chose to hurl it contemptuously at an armless man. That typewriter in his hands had been an instrument of strange magic. For after all, it is magic, this creation of words, particularly such dream words as Hawkins conjured up. Was it Cabell who compared writing to wizardry? Hawkins, whether he had occult powers or not, was a wizard with his typewriter. He chose to offer it sardonically to a hack an ironic gesture, just as a voodoo hag might give one of her little wax dolls of death to a child who would innocently play with it and never understand its horrid powers. So I mused, smoking. I was pretty smart that day, pretty much the amateur philosopher, the armchair Spinoza. Three months later I had to eat my words, and they were bitter indeed. Stephen Ayres had done the impossible— he began writing again, selling again. He couldn't help but sell what he wrote. What writing! The first yarn appeared, and I read it. I didn't admit anything, even to myself. But the next month brought another tale, and yet another. I couldn't deny it any longer. Stephen Ayres had turned into a master. He came up to the house shortly after the appearance of the third story. I greeted him with sincere pleasure— though I own to being a bit shocked by his haggardness. He was no longer lean. He was ascetic. His long arms hung not listlessly, but leadenly. His bright eyes were now too bright. Three things can do that—drugs, fear, or intensive creative effort. I chose to suspect the latter. 
"'Great job, Stephen,' I commented. "'That last one especially.' Ayers smiled. Six more in the office right now, and they're better still. Same old Ayers, always the shrinking violet in fantasy's garden. I chose to insert my rapier, my cutlass, rather. I'm not very subtle. You look as though you've been working hard, I said. But then it must be difficult, copying Hawkins's style. What's that? Don't snarl at me. I'm no rejection slip. What do you mean I'm copying Hawkins's style? Well, aren't you? Using his mythology, his theories. Yes, and his word choices, sentence structure, and rhythm patterns. I've read the technical books, my friend, and I've read Hawkins, too. You're writing Hawkins stories now. Though I must admit, you're doing an excellent job. These stories sound, oh, I'll admit it, even better than his usual product. Now that's a fair speech. No undue bitterness, a little plain fact no threats about it, no intimidation. And I wasn't scowling when I said it. I didn't bare my fangs like a menacing bull-ape. But there must have been something frightening. Stephen Ayres began to tremble, tremble all over. I've never seen that before. His thin hands, his wrists shook, his face twitched, and he swallowed rapidly. You dare to say that? Why not? True, isn't it? Stephen Ayres suddenly began to bawl again. It was getting monotonous for me, this blubberfest. I told him so. You don't understand. I've been getting letters from the editors, from the fans, and you, you who knew Hawkins so well, you say the same thing. That they're his stories. His. I say you copy his style, that's all. All? I sit at his typewriter and write my tales, and it comes out wrong. Don't you understand? It comes out... Wrong. I think of what I'm going to say, and it writes itself differently. Writes itself as he wrote. This time I didn't ask him to shut up. I shut up myself instead. His two bright eyes stared at me. I swear to you, I'm not responsible. It's not me that's writing. It's the machine. Harkins's machine. It writes the stories, I tell you. I tried to hide it from myself, even when the letters began to come in. But now, what you say, oh, what a fool I was. Why did I ever accept the damn thing? Luther must have known when he sent it. He, he never forgave me at all. His note didn't exactly say so, remember? He gave me that machine out of pure revenge. He wanted me to have it, to be haunted by his ghost, his personality. And it's driving me mad. It's driving me mad, I mimicked. Like a stooge in a horror mystery, I suppose. Now listen to reason ears. First, Hawkins isn't a ghost. His typewriter isn't a ghost typewriter either. It seems to me you're suffering from the symptoms of an ordinary guilt complex. You wronged Hawkins. Your guilty conscience was profoundly stirred by his unexpected gift. His foolish babblings about expecting death upset you. Now, subconsciously, whenever you sit down at that typewriter, it all springs back to your mind— your subconscious directs you to atone, to recompense. Therefore, you unconsciously strive to duplicate his writing, his style. Now, perhaps Hawkins did dislike you. I wouldn't blame him for that. Perhaps he was an astute enough psychologist to figure out your reactions in just this way. He might have wanted this to happen. But still, it needn't upset you. You're doing good work, great work. As long as you keep it up, your stories will sell. 
you'll make money. Be grateful to Luther Hawkins' heirs, grateful for his gift or his revenge. It will be the making of you. But I'm afraid. I sit down every day with a ghost, a ghost that guides my fingers. I tell you, I can almost feel his hands moving over the keys. When I write, it's like a dream. Afterward, I read and can remember putting the words down. I know the stuff is good, so I submit it and it sells, but it's not me. It's Hawkins who does the work. I began to snort, but Ayers rushed on. It's driving me crazy, particularly when I begin to think about it. Hawkins was a strange man. You know that. He was a small town boy by birth, but Salem was a small town also, and witches were born there. He was an ordinary-looking farmer, but the devil walks clothed in strange flesh. He was a vulgar enough poseur, but underneath was the man, or the entity, or the thing that wrote those damnably chilling stories of his. Yes, the thing, I call it. The thing that urged him into studying demonology. He pried into strange cults at the last, and he might have learned queer secrets. Your psychoanalysis might work in here, considering Hawkins. He was a dual personality. One, a country boy trying to live in character with his success as a weird writer. As such, he was grotesque, a clown. But the other, the thing inside him, the other that wrote his stories, expressed itself by delving into dark mysteries. That was a part of Luther Hawkins we'll never know. It was that part which governed him when he sent me his typewriter. His typewriter. When he wrote, he was that other self. The hands of that other self clawed at the keys. The thoughts of that other self poured out from beyond wild gulfs of imagination. The typewriter has an aura. It is permeated with alien personality. It has a soul. You have a bellyache, I retorted inelegantly. You certainly can't believe that. I do. Ayers was on his feet now. And I know more. Oh, much more. Hawkins was a wizard. At least he knew secrets he would call sorceress. He knew he was going to die, and so he sent me the typewriter out of hate. He must have done something to it, too. Did you know how he was found dead? Not on the floor, but over the machine. His last breath going into the keys and in the plate and the note he sent me. The last thing he ever wrote. Don't you see what I'm trying to tell you, man? Don't you understand? Luther Hawkins is dead, but his soul is in the typewriter. That sounded so funny to me, I wanted to laugh out loud. The grotesqueness of the phrase was killing. I thought, John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. It was very, very funny. Only Stephen Ayres wasn't funny. When he yelled the last words, he toppled over in a faint, and it took me five minutes to bring him to. Five minutes, and the rest of my precious brandy. During those five minutes I had a little time to think, and my thoughts weren't pretty. I had just played the amateur Freud with the problem this time, and I hadn't been right. Suppose Ayers was right. After all, there are strange things in this world. Unexplained mysteries. Catalepsy, telepathy, and the peculiar trances, obsessions, lycanthropies— and unnamed dreads of recognized psychopathology. Witchcraft in 1600, but scientific fact today. 
hypnotism, and all the rest, leading to a realm of hidden, unguessed-of mental powers. Suppose Hawkins had infused his personality into the typewriter that represented so great a part of it, just before he died, a strong final wish entering that which was as much a part of himself when he wrote as his very hands. Surely Ayres believed, and he was afraid. But of what? Why should he be so sure that Hawkins hated him strongly enough to do this? Why did he worry so? There was more here than met the eye, or my ears. I thought a lot, and worried too, until I brought Ayres around. When he sat up, both of us were quieter. "'Listen, Stephen, you're a little shaky. Better let me take you home.' "'Yes. No, no, don't come. I'm all right. Please.' But I had him out the door, into the car. He mumbled at my side, weakly protesting. But I persisted. We pulled up, I helped him out, went into the hall with him. And then it started. I heard it. Stephen lived on the second floor. But I heard it coming through the wall from upstairs. The click, click, clicking of a typewriter. Click, click, click. Keys moving down. Ting! The bell. The slide of a carriage lever. Click, click, click. Stephen heard it, too. He began to moan. Yes, yes, yes. I warned you. Tried to keep you away. Now you know why I'm afraid. Why I think as I do. That's my typewriter. You hear it, don't you? That's Luther Hawkins's typewriter. And you know now that I'm not afraid I'm mad. I'm afraid I'm sane. Sane, and yet hearing that, knowing that. I was halfway up the steps by now. And Stephen found the energy of horror to race at my heels, still babbling. See? Understand? I said Luther writes my stories, but I didn't want to tell all. I don't write at all. Don't even sit down at the thing. I put in the paper. You know, I use rolls of bond instead of single sheets, and, and the machine starts. It starts. I've sat there and watched it, seen the keys going down. The carriage returned, the space bar pressed, without human hands touching it. And when it stops, there's a finished story. Luther's story on Luther's typewriter, typed by his own dead hands. He nearly passed out again. I got his keys, opened the door. I was dazed, but not too dazed to make for the sitting room, not too dazed to mistake the direction of those sounds that should not be. I dashed in, airs at my side, and there it was, on the table. Luther Hawkins's typewriter, clicking madly, clicking insanely, clicking in my head. Little clicks of horror clicking in my head, little bells ringing as lines were ended. Months now, Ayers whispered. Months. I'm afraid to throw it away or smash it, for fear he'll send something worse. I know this isn't all he planned. He must have known from the first and devised some devilish scheme of which this is a part. But I dare not interfere. I've tried everything, everything. His voice rose above the typing in that lonely room. It wasn't so ghastly somehow, after watching it a while. A mechanical device working the keys automatically, that was all. 
My eye searched for a wire, a connection. There was none, and I was a fool to even suspect it. Ayers was frightened, and for a moment I'd felt the same way. But now was the time for sanity. You've tried... what? Oh, many things. I put in the first roll of paper. You know they come in thirty-foot lengths. The machine started before I sat down that first time. I didn't believe until I saw the story pour out. His story. Backspaced over errors, lines crossed out as in his manuscripts. Stopped about a foot from the end of the roll because the story was ended. I took it out, cut it, and read it. I put in another roll to keep from going berserk, I guess. Then sat down to type myself. The keys don't work. Hear me? When I type, the keys don't work. I've never typed a line on that machine, I swear it. Click, 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 went the ghost typewriter there in that room, clicking above Ayers's woods in horrid mockery. So I experimented. I put in another roll, another story, a shorter one. The machine didn't type when no paper was in it. I wanted to leave it out permanently, but I didn't dare, any more than I dared destroy the machine. Because if he could do that to me, he could do worse if I interfered. You understand? Click, click, click. Yes, I understood, and shuddered. Once I tried to stuff up the carriage. It didn't work. I tried to tangle the keys. They can't be budged. Several times I inserted ordinary sheets of typing paper. The clicking started, but stopped at the bottom of the page. The machine is intelligent. At other times I put in fresh rolls and nothing happened. Nothing at first, that is. The machine wasn't ready to write. It was thinking. Then, perhaps in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and hear it. Hear the machine clicking in the darkness, ghost hands riding in the darkness that was deeper than the night, riding from what strange gulfs. In what black pits coils the mind that pens these tales? Stories written from the grave, thoughts from a brain already rotting under the worms. Click, click, click. I couldn't stand it. I went over to the table. Halfway through the row, the machine typed on, and I read three sentences just as they poured out. Luther Hawkins's sentences, his style, his word choice. I passed my hand across the keys. They did not move. I felt nothing guiding them. The typing went on, and I stared stupidly at the label of a standard model L.C. Smith machine. No ghost-built instrument of human bones, but Luther Hawkins's old typewriter. On the side I read the date, seal, and serial number of the machine. It clicked on. You see what I mean? A sunny room, an ordinary typewriter on an ordinary table— writing words of horror without human hands to guide it. Each click hurt my brain. Ears just stared glassy-eyed at me. I began to whisper without knowing it. But why? Why? Why should Hawkins hate you so, torment you? What purpose would he have if, in some strange manner, he guessed he was about to die in cursing you this way? What can he hope to gain by animating his typewriter with his spirit and doing this, why is? There's a reason. It was almost a scream. I daren't tell, but there's a reason. He knew he was going to die, and how? 
I haven't told you just how bitterly we'd quarreled before the end, either. He had reason to hate me, and then he learned about his death. He had a reason, believe me, and I don't know what he means to do, but you must stop him, for the love of God, stop him! The typewriter stopped. My eyes were on it. In higher case letters at the end of the last line, it wrote, Finis, just as Hawkins always wrote. There was perhaps six feet of paper left in the machine. Automatically I jerked it out, jerked out the story. I don't know why. I was a little crazy, I guess. What with theirs screaming at me and my own brain screaming back. I only know that I put a fresh sheet of ordinary white paper in the typewriter for no reason at all. Just to see what would happen, I suppose. Then I turned back to Ayers, my mind on his last words— What's the reason, Ayers? Why did he hate you this much? What did you do to Luther Hawkins that makes you so afraid? Ayers was white as the sheet of paper I'd just inserted in the typewriter. His eyes were black as carbon. His teeth shone like the keys. I'll tell you. I stole two of his stories. First copies he sent me to read when we were friends. I stole them, and he threatened to expose me and he threatened me with more, crazy threats of his powers. He told me part of what he had learned of demonology, and I was afraid. So I—I— I, Oh, no. Oh, yes. The typewriter was clicking again. The bar was going up and down. The keys were clicking. It cut short hairs as words. It tore my eyes down. And I read this. Dear Block. Yes, my name— my name printed by a typewriter that moved without the guidance of human fingers. Moved on. Dear Block, what Ayers is trying to tell you is quite simple. He killed me. That should explain everything. The young fool was afraid of me, and resorted to a very simple trick, one I should have suspected, knowing his talent for cheap melodrama. He sent me a poisoned letter. Very simple, as I say. I opened it, pricked my finger, and died. A childish stratagem that went out with the Borgias. Only a fool like Ayers would be mad enough to conceive of such a scheme. His morbid hatred of me must have warped his judgment. It was droll, though, that the absurd plan succeeded, but not utterly. I have powers—had powers, rather, since I no longer exist. By divination I was able to foretell my approaching death— and the agent causing it, though under the wizard's law I could not see the exact method of death, and thus defeat it. All I knew was that I must die, and Ayers would kill me in some way. So I planned this, sent my typewriter, after doing that which was needful, to Ayers. He would not dare destroy it after what I chose to tell him. I meant him to keep it until it drove him mad. But you are here now, and I know a better way." This note, which I now write, will expose him as the murderer he is. Ask him about the letter of November 19th, which is still locked in my desk. Why are the New York police to produce it? The tiny sliver of poisoned wood lodged in the envelope is still visible. Hold ears for the police. Don't divulge the source of your information. And so, my friend, the task is ended. Do not question my powers— but remember that there are dark mysteries beyond life. 
and one bold enough to pay the price may direct the finger of destiny, even direct it to press down typewriter keys. Yours, Luther Hawkins. I write from memory, memory in which those words are burned, the searing horror of that final clicking which wrote the signature of the dead man almost paralyzed my senses. I hadn't realized that Ayers was standing before me, gazing with insane eyes at the accusing words as they clicked out in that ghostly rhythm of revenge. But now Ayers screamed. His hands went down, raking the paper from the machine, tearing it out as he shrieked aloud at the top of his voice. "'Yes, yes, it's true! I did it! But you can't cheat me, Hawkins! You can't!' He tore the paper— his maniac hands gripping the typewriter as he raised it in his arms to dash the accursed thing to the floor. Then Stephen Ayres fell. No, I'll be truthful. He didn't fall. The typewriter pushed him. He held it in his arms, and it crushed down. He crumpled to the floor beneath its pressure, the typewriter crashing into his chest, and Stephen Ayres stopped screaming, and the base of the machine was stained red. There was a tiny bit of paper left dangling in the machine. Now, resting on the body forever still, the clicking began again, faintly but surely, one last line, and then a final crash. The machine bounced up and splintered, exploded. Keys, tabs, in a mechanism flew all over the room in tangled bits of what had once been the typewriter of Luther Hawkins. I picked up the little scrap of paper before I ran out, picked it up and read the final epitaph. Here lies the body of Stephen Ayres and the soul of Luther Hawkins. From now on, I'm writing all my stories with a fountain pen.'